This is Talking Headways, the Streets Blog podcast. I'm Tanya Snyder, editor of Streets Blog Capitol Hill at Freewheel Studios in our nation's capital. And I'm Jeff Wood at Wooner Studios in foggy Oakland, California. Well, let's start with something that I feel like has been going around a lot over the last couple of days on social media and regular media and even mainstream media. The New York Times just had a story on uh, titled, Is It Okay to Kill Cyclists? But there's been a lot of this kind of war on cars, war on bikes kind of imagery. The Weekly Standard had something the other day. You can always count on the Wall Street Journal to do something ridiculous. I, I get some comfort from the, the Gandhi quote, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And I feel like we're fighting now. <laughs> The war has begun. The war has begun, yeah. So I guess we're just one step away from winning. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's that easy, but uh, or that close, uh, unfortunately. But yeah, a lot of this stuff has been going on, and and you know, you guys at Streets Blog have been kind of taking it to a new level with your weekly carnage uh, reports and things like that. But a lot of you know, a lot of cities, most of the people drive uh, versus take transit or walk or bike, and so part of the issue is that most people have that windshield perspective. What I find amazing is that people driving look at cyclists as kind of impediments and things that are slowing them down and they don't they don't realize first of all that if that person weren't on a bicycle they'd maybe be in a car and so they'd be stuck behind more car traffic. They they just think that person needs to get off the road without so thinking without thinking I need to get off the road because I'm in a machine that can kill that person. <laughs> Right. Well, we're encased. I mean, when we are driving cars, we're encased in these, you know, two tons of metal. And so it gives us this somewhat invincibility as well as power to think that we're more than we are because we have two tons of metal. And that person has, you know, maybe a couple of pounds of metal, depending on how light or heavy your bike is. Um, and I think that if you're on a, in a car and you're driving, you feel like everybody should get out of your way and you should be able to go as freely and as fast as you want to wherever you're going, which as in city builders now, we're trying to kind of slow the car down because we know that slower cars mean more safety. But when you're in the car, you you have this kind of righteous feeling that you should be able to get to wherever you want to go as fast as you want to go. And I think it also matters what is slowing you down. If what's slowing you down is a red light, people are used to that. If what's slowing you down is that there's a lot of cars in front of you, people are used to that. But somehow drivers aren't as used to, in many places, aren't as used to having to wait a couple seconds until there's a safe moment to pass a cyclist. Well, I, I don't know if I see it that way because I think, you know, as, as a longtime auto user myself, <laughs> as a longtime driver myself, you know, I, I, I get annoyed at the red lights and I get annoyed at traffic and why, aren't they, why are all these people here? Why, you know, why, why do I have to stop at this light? Or, you know, it's one of those things where you just miss the light and you're like, oh, you know, the traffic gods are against me. Right. <laughs> and you get upset and you, that's where your road rage comes from. So I think people in general just feel like they, they should have the right of way and they should, you know, they're in this two-ton vehicle and they should be able to go. But you, you hear about these confrontations, even when I was running cross-country in college, if there was a driver that drove out in front of us, even though because he wasn't paying attention, somebody would take their fist and bang it on his rear mirror or on, on their hood, mm-hmm. and the driver would call the school and somebody would get in trouble, but it was his fault that he almost hit us, right? So right. that person almost killed you, but they're the ones that get rewarded, I guess, because they got you in trouble. Um, they're going to feel like they can do it again and again and again. So I think it's a kind of a feedback loop in that sense. And then the New York Times story gets at the fact that 
even if you really do kill somebody. I mean, and that's that's why the Weekly Carnage, as hard as it is to write and as hard as it is to read, really is important because to see how often this is happening, how prevalent traffic violence is in our cities and how little it's it gets any kind of justice. It's just so yeah. upsetting to... Well, I don't it's know. I, I can't even the, always read it. <laughs> I know. It's not just pedestrians and bicyclists. It's actually automobile drivers, too, because I had an article actually in the, in the news last, I think it was last week, that was the 13th anniversary in Texas, the 13th anniversary of the last day that somebody wasn't killed on a Texas road. But that it's been 13 years bit. since there was yeah. a single day without a death. Right. Oh. That's just astonishing to me that we accept that death. You know, like, oh, what is it, 43,000 people die a year on, on, on the roads? I think it's like 34,000. 34,000? Okay, well, <laughs> either way, it's still a lot of people. And if you think about, you know, over a 10-year period, that's if it's 30,000 a year, that's what, 300,000 people? Is that right? 340,000, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a lot of people. That's a, that's a war yeah. there. And, yeah. and that, that's the casualties of, the, of, you know, it's not even the war. It's just, you know, internal, it's like... Lord of the Flies. It's like friend, friendly fire. So, yeah, friendly fire. It's Ugh. not even, you know, it's not even the bikes versus cars. It's just the whole thing. And it's, you know, it's astonishing. So maybe it is a war. Maybe that's a, an apt metaphor. <laughs> maybe so. Somebody, um, oh, David Craner, who writes The Wash Cycle, was calling, what's his name? F.H. Buckley, Frank Buckley, who wrote this terrible story that I... William F. Buckley? It, it was not, but it's, uh, <laughs> I think along those lines, um, maybe even along those bloodlines, in any event, who wrote this terrible piece for the Wall Street Journal that I covered the other day, but the the Wash Cycle specifically mentioned that Maybe, especially when you are a driver and talking about a, a cyclist's war on cars, when what you mean is that they inconvenience you once in a while yeah. or are, you know, trying to influence a policy discussion to reallocate street space, that maybe maybe that's not the most respectful language to use for people who've been in real wars. But. Right. That's true. So I don't know if this is a segue worth making, but speaking of reallocating street space, Gabe Klein is leaving Chicago at the end of the month. Jeanette Sadik Khan is leaving New York City. I don't know. It seems like a kind of a sad and scary moment to know that they're leaving and not knowing who's coming in. Well, I don't know if it's sad and scary. I think it's proof of how much they have actually, those two have actually changed things. Those those two are very powerful forces in the livable streets movement. And in my mind, you know, all good things come to an end at some point. And I'm not saying that the good times are going to come to an end. <laughs> I'm just saying that the new ideas have to come in and new things have to pop up and new challenges have to be gone after, I guess. But I think looking back on it, you know, looking back at what they've done, it, it's pretty astonishing. And, it, uh, and even though they're leaving, it's a good thing because it got other cities and other places to start to think about how to change their places, right? They, they, you know, Jeanette had Jan Gell come in and talk about how, you know, the Dutch changed their place. And she started changing New York. And the change in New York has started changing other places, other cities. You know, San Francisco has changed because of because of Jeanette and Gabe, people like them who are pushing harder. Um, like, so are there, are there people out there, other transportation leaders out there that you think are kind of ready to take their place, maybe not 
in those cities, maybe not in Chicago and New York, but although it would be, it's interesting to, to think about maybe who might take their places in Chicago and New York, but who might take their place as sort of the, the standard bearer and banner waver of the livable cities movement? You know, I don't have anybody in mind right now, but I, I think it, it's a good opportunity for other people to pop up instead of just the usual suspects. There's an opportunity now to bring more people out you know, to the forefront of this or to give people an opportunity to become leaders. And it's kind of like when you're in high school and you're on a, a sports team and, and the seniors gra- have to graduate, right? And they have to go, they're going off to college to do something at, at a larger level. So somebody and else gets to be captain? Some, yeah, somebody else gets to be captain. Somebody else has to step up in order to keep, keep that tradition alive. We need to, you know, get the younger folks involved as well. Um, and, you know, we don't know who those people are yet, but um, hopefully they'll kind of step up into the spotlight um, because there's a vacancy, and so they got to fill the air. I think that there are a couple different vacancies that we're talking about, by the way. I think, you know, there there are the vacancies that need to be filled in New York and Chicago. Um, and then there's the position, for example, Jeanette was president of NACTO. In addition to these real positions that have titles and salaries, I don't know if NACTO president actually has a salary associated with oh. it, but anyway, but just sort of livable streets hero, <laughs> is, there, there just might not be a new one. Oh, that's so pessimistic of you. Okay, so we just we're just not going to go there. Let's just not even go there. Okay, there will be somebody new and exciting, fresh blood, good and positive and just need to be hopeful, right? There's always there's always somebody new to to jump into the fold, another one into the breach, right? There's going to be somebody out there and they're going to take the mantle and they're going to take it on, you know, strong and it's going to be somebody that we say this is our this is our new torchbearer. I mean, it's interesting. When Gabe Klein left D.C., we were sort of wondering, oh, God, what's going to happen? And the acting transportation director has been Terry Bellamy, and he's just been doing the job ever since. And he's not a visionary. He's not Gabe Klein. But Gabe Klein left him these blueprints and the streetcars coming in, and they're still expanding bike share at a breathless pace. And so, you know, it's it's all continuing. I mean, I think that it took a Gabe Klein to come in and say this is what DC is going to be and kind of get that ball rolling. And then you could have somebody who who maybe isn't quite so visionary but is going to is going to do the job. And that's and and that's an easier role to fill. Well, I think you need those people, honestly. I think I don't want to give too many examples cuz then I'd get in trouble, but <laughs> I think I think that you know, there's a lot of times where you need a visionary to start things. And then you need somebody practical to actually finish the job. It's true. Those are not always the same people, are they? They're not necessarily the same people. They're never the same people. <laughs> but I think we have lots of doers. I think we have lots of people that are that are putting it into practice, and it's happening all over the country. Right. Um, can we can we turn our attention to Texas for a bit? Yeah, I love Texas. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Double Texas. Double Texas. Yes. Yeah. Let's do both. So. So I I did a story recently on the default risk of Texas Route 130. SH-130, yeah. SH-130. Right. So so now the Texas Tribune is reporting that there are basically all of these schemes in place, not in place, but kind of rolling around the heads of these transportation officials trying to figure out something, not about the upcoming bankruptcy of this road that runs right alongside I-35, but about the fact that I-35 is so congested. And here you have this toll road that's so empty that it's about to go belly up. Yeah. 
So a little background on I-35 and, and going through Austin. I-35 is the central artery that goes through the city, but it's one of the few freeways actually in in the city of Austin, which is much different than a place like Houston or Dallas, which has these ring roads. They have you know parallel freeways. They have perpendicular freeways, I-10 and I-45 in Houston, and those are major roads. And then 610 loop, you have you know a whole system of freeways that goes out and out and out. Austin only has one interstate highway that just basically bisects the city in half. And so you have these north-south roads, but you don't have east-west roads. So Austin has a specific challenge with its traffic in the sense that the north-south roads are very, very congested because people are trying to get through this choke point that is downtown. Um, and so the, the downtown choke point happened because back in the um, the time of separate but equal, which is a horrible time in our nation's history, <laughs> but a lot of the services for um, African-American folks was put on the east side of, of East Road. And then after that all changed, East Road actually was turned into I-35, and they built this huge barrier. In order to not take down all the houses between, they took, you know, they double-decked it. So you have this huge barrier between neighborhoods um, that splits the center of the of the city in half, but also in terms of income and um, race as well. It's starting to gentrify more now, but that was a big thing that happened in between those places. What happened afterwards is that as the road got more congested, the people that were splitting off to go on the upper deck have to merge back down with the people on the lower deck, which causes a lot of congestion. Sure. So downtown Austin through I-35 is really, really bad, especially you know when people are going to school. or to Because of that one merge? Is it a, more of a problem with re-engineering it rather than widening it, just, just changing the way that the interchanges and merge points work? I th- I think part of it was just the growth. I think you know Austin's been growing it's just at too an many incredible, cars. incredible pace, and there's just too many cars. Um, there's too many cars on that stretch of road. There and there's also a plan to to sink it underground and to reclaim the space between um, downtown Austin and East Austin um, for people. And to you know they want to use a value capture to that would be both decks. Well, the both decks happen actually after right after downtown. Right? Got it. So. All that's to say that downtown is really congested on I-35. But then they built this toll road that goes all the way around that congestion point, SH-130. It goes from Georgetown all the way south. If you're a truck driver, you can take off on this toll road and go all the way around and not have to worry about that congestion point. Well, it shows that the prices actually do matter to people because nobody's actually taking it, which is why they're having problems with their bond. It's also extra mileage, right? It's extra mileage, too. But the the hope that you're actually not going to have to spend any money is apparently more powerful than knowing that you're going to have a you know a freeway all the way through. Even if it takes section. you all day to get there. Even if it takes you all day to get there if you had to go through downtown. See, that's um, the amazing thing to me. And the thing that I find so galling about so many of these big state highway plans is that when you give people the option and say, look, we made you this beautiful, uncongested road because you've been complaining for years about traffic congestion. (laughs) So we made you this beautiful, uncongested road, but you're going to need to pay a few dollars. Those people will spend hours instead of their lives waiting in that traffic jam. But And then say, that should be a freeway. It should be paid by the taxpayer. So this like billion dollar project or whatever, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer money is totally worth it, but it is so not worth it for me to spend $4 right. to drive that road. And now that you aren't paying for it, we are going to swap the numbers on these two freeways so that we can toll one of them and then the other one be free because then more people will take the one that's free. 
That's amazing. So th- you're not allowed to toll existing interstates. No, they but, tried it in Pennsylvania, but they, I think Ed Rendell tried it and they said, no, 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 no. He did try. No, I think he's still on that mission. But you can't toll existing interstates, so they're going to call it 130. This is, you know, it's all in the early stages, obviously, but there is an idea that they would switch them, switch the number 35 over to the SH-130. So then that one would be free, and then they can toll current I-35, which I don't know what they'd call it, SH-130, but you know, then they'd have the ability to toll it because then it wouldn't be uh, an interstate anymore. Right. It's crazy. It's creative. I mean, actually, you know, it's not a bad idea in the sense that you're actually tolling the congestion and probably clearing up some of that gridlock and you're actually probably making people think about whether they want to drive down I-35. But then you're just opening up the other side for all the truck traffic and everything that basically won't have to pay any fees for their their clogging up the roads. Right. It seems like they're going to have to figure out something. I'm not sure that that's the tactic I would use. Well, I don't know what, I mean, I I think a lot of people wouldn't have, didn't want to build the road in the first place. Yeah. um, because they felt like it would open up sprawl and, and stuff on the on the east side of town. And that part of Texas, I mean, where Austin is located is that's the start of the hill country. That's the start of the landscape changes. So it's it's prairie and grasslands before. And then when you get past downtown Austin, then you get to the hills. You're on one side, which is really hilly, and then you're on the other side, which is a lot of grassland and open prairie, which is where the sprawl would definitely happen if you allowed it to. So, so if you kind of open up more road capacity through that grassland prairie area, that that part east of Austin would, would become a kind of a sprawl corridor. Yeah. Well, this part, this goes to that next article, right, on the job sprawl, too, because a lot of Austin's job growth and a lot of growth in, in the region as a whole has been up north in Williamson County, and that's where Dell is, and that's where north of Austin is where, like, Samsung built their chip plant and huh. a bunch of other things. So that's the kind of employment sprawl. So, you know, people aren't necessarily trying to get into downtown Austin. They're trying to get to these a lot of these other jobs. Right. So that, that Houston Chronicle story about job sprawl, I, I felt like it, it sort of made the point. It sort of missed the point. Uh, my point, anyway. I don't know if I was trying to make my point. But it made it sound like, like there's so many jobs in these places, and there's so much traffic because there's so many jobs. And it seems like the real problem is not when there's employment concentration in one place. It's when you have so much decentralization of employment and bad transit options that everybody that needs to get to work needs to drive. Yes. And they're driving all over the region. Yeah. Well, so in Houston, the specific example is Exxon moving out of downtown and moving up towards the woodlands on a huge tract of land. Right. They're taking all their employees and going up there. And that's a horrible idea. Um, I'm sure it's CEO driven and probably the CEO wants to buy a bigger house somewhere up north or have $2 million would go a lot further up in Conroe or, or the Woodlands than it does in River Oaks downtown, where all the oil magnates are. They're um, all downtown? Well, many of them are. So they understand <laughs> the appeal of urban living? Well, maybe. You know, they just want the rest of us not to realize it. Ask their, gated, ask their gated guards how they feel about that. But they're basically transferring wealth from the people that work for them to the company itself. Whoa. So, and when I say that, I mean that they're actually building a campus way outside of downtown instead of building like a skyscraper or, you know, renting office space in a downtown area. To save themselves money. To, to save themselves money. They're actually saving themselves money by building a sprawling campus, but they're extracting money from their employees because they have to drive more. They have to own cars. They can't just take the bus downtown anymore. They have to drive all 
all the way up to the woodlands, which is not a short haul for some of those people if they lived south of Houston. It's like 30 miles north, right? Mm -hmm. So now you have a huge commute for a lot of these people. So not only are they extracting oil from the ground, they're extracting money from their employees by making them pay more for transportation. Well, making them pay more for transportation and fill up their gas tanks more often with Exxon gas. Exactly. Well, well, so they have, a, they have an interest, a vested interest in that. Um, but I would think that they'd want to have more productive workers. But the thing is, is this is causing a lot of congestion because they're making it so that you have to drive. And so that means more cars on the road. And there was a story yesterday, too, in, in the San Jose Mercury News about people complaining about the Bay Area traffic in the South Bay and in the Silicon Valley. Well, that's their, you know... Over the years, that's been their own fault from them building these, like, campuses that are on their own and not anywhere near transit. Um, you know, Google campus is off away from, from the Caltrain, and Facebook campus is, I guess it's close to VTA, but not anywhere near where someone from San Francisco can get there quite easily, except for using a Facebook bus or a Google bus. And that's where, where all those buses have come from, because these campuses are so hard to get to on regular public transit, they have to make their own transit, which those major companies can afford, but the young, you know, the younger startups and the others, you know, they have to depend on workforce that can get to where they, where they are. Now this, this kind of corporate shuttle Twitter bus kind of thing is, is kind of a Bay area Silicon Valley phenomenon. We don't have it out here. So I hear a lot of complaining about it. And I guess to me, I just think if you're going to locate in a crazy, stupid location like that, they're doing it right, at least. They're not forcing their employees to do all that driving. They are saying, yes. we're going to provide a transit alternative. It seems like that's not yes. so bad. I, I, t I totally agree with that. But to me, it's a symbol of a larger issue of the land use problem and destination. The buses, to me, are just kind of a symbol of Silicon Valley and San Jose's and the you know peninsula in general. They're, they, like, for example, Palo Alto just rejected like a senior housing complex because they didn't want more, more development. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. So they're, they're so anti-development that, you know, they're not going to allow anything to happen, or they want, you know, these big um, spaceships to blast off from Cupertino. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I'm fine with the shuttles because they're actually addressing a need and they're, they're actually reducing traffic, but they are a sign to many people of, um, of the gentrification that's happening in San Francisco as well as the issue, for me specifically, the issue of the land uses down south where they won't let, you know, they won't let new construction happen. And they build these huge campuses that have no, you know, they have a sea of parking lots around them. I, don't, I you know, if you're on your computer right now, uh, I would highly suggest checking out an aerial photo of North San Jose. It is crazy how many you know, buildings they have and how much parking is required for all those buildings. So they have, you know, they're all really dense places, but they're all so spread out from each other that there's no organization, there's no pattern that you could, you could actually build like, you know, five downtown San Francisco's probably with the number of jobs and you could have had it in a place where you could serve it by transit or subways or whatever, but, and then house all the people in, you know, mid-rise and single family homes around it, but they chose to sprawl the, over the whole valley. They took up all the, the fruit trees are gone now and, and they've built these crazy complexes and parking lots and stuff that have hampered, um, hampered the ability to um, get around without sitting in traffic, and, and that's a big issue. Wait, I'm looking at North San Jose. What am I looking at? Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you go north of the airport. Okay. You see what I'm seeing? It looks like a bunch of boxes, right? Okay. And do you just see all the parking lots and all the buildings? Those are all like four or five-story buildings. It's not organized. It's just kind of a mess. If oh, I see. Yep. Wow. Yeah. 
around there, like to the west and the east, there's trees. And then around here, they're, they just said, no room for trees. That's a parking spot. Right. We're at the long route um, I-25 here. The 25. You call it the 25. No, no, no. That's Southern California. Oh, really? I thought it was everybody. No, no, no. Th- those people in Southern California. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very uh, good. Yeah, so that's what I'm talking about. Those just kind of seas of, of you know, tilt-up buildings and parking lots. I actually also wanted to talk about Tennessee. Um, well, why don't you introduce it? Well, so the next story is one of interest to me because it's actually a true BRT line in Nashville that Beth Harwell, who is, I guess, the Speaker of the House in the good state of Tennessee, um, doesn't believe that using $35 million from state funding is necessary for this investment in Nashville. And obviously, I don't agree. (laughs) But it's it's not that she's saying you don't need the state money. It's that she's saying we don't need BRT. That too. I mean, she. I guess she represents part of the route, or right on the outside of the route. Um, and she's talked to her constituents, and they've told her that they don't like it. But <laughs> well, she also had this horrible line that I think you spotlighted about: if we give transit money to Nashville, then Memphis is going to want yeah. some. Here's the quote here, uh, and I put it in the quote of the day because I thought it was so egregious. Um, we have very limited highway project funds, and we have a lot of infrastructure needs across the state that are already prioritized. And I don't think we need to deviate from that priority list for this mass transit project. If we do something like this for Nashville, we're going to have projects pop up in Memphis, Knoxville, etc. And that's what's so galling to me about it happening in Tennessee especially, because Tennessee recently did some great work with Smart Growth America to revisit their road project to-do list and, and really throw a lot of those projects away, saying not only do we not have money for these big kind of road boondoggles anymore, but, but this isn't the kind of transportation we should be building anymore. And it just seems like Beth Harwell did not get that memo. Yeah. Well, for me, it's an exportation of tax base. I think, you know, I, I looked up the budget for the state DOT. In one year, this project, the amount of money that they would give would be 4% of the budget. Um, for BRT? For Just for the BRT line, yeah. It would be 4%. That's not a huge amount, especially when most of it's going to freeways anyways. But also, these are the cities that are, you know, the people in these cities are the ones that are driving, and they're the ones that are sending, you know, tax base to um, to, to the state DOT. And so, what, you're not going to spend any money in the cities anymore, and you're just going to spend it in the on-road expansion projects in the suburbs and places outside of the actual city? Right. I mean, there's a there's kind of a disconnect in a lot of the, a lot of states where the state DOT gets the money from, you know, DOT, and as well as, you know, their gas tax money. And they, you know, want to take it and spend it in the places that don't generate the revenue, right? You know, if this project is in downtown Nashville, Nash Vegas, as some people call it. <laughs> Then, then why not you know reinvest in that in that city? It's still you're still rebuilding a street. You're still going to put down the you know the bus lanes and and make a you know corridor more productive. It's actually going to be 80% dedicated lanes, which I think is amazing, especially when most cities are opting out of the dedicated lanes and into the rapid bus. That's great. Um, That's what puts the RT in BRT, right? <laughs> this is my theory of the lowest common denominator, where if yeah. you start off with 
subway, people are saying, oh, well, we can't afford that, let's do light rail. Or if you start out with light rail, people say, oh, we can't afford that, let's do BRT. And so Nashville went that route where they're like, oh, well, we can't afford that, let's start with BRT. And so now people are going to pick away at the BRT, right, until they get their rapid bus. Um, she doesn't even is, want a rapid bus. This lady wants highways. Yeah, she wants highways. But I'm just saying, like, the opposition in general. Um, I feel like they're going to yeah. the road people are going to pick out a way at it any way possible to get their freeways, to get their money for their free. All the money is theirs. All your base are belong to us, is right. what they say. You know, so um, I, I just I, it really bothers me, especially when this is you know this seems like a good project. And, you know, eighty percent is a lot. I mean, for me, that's great. And I think that they could show the Wilshire people in LA a thing or two about <laughs> lanes, right? So you're saying eighty percent of the lanes will be dedicated? What are you? Yeah. What's the eighty percent? Eighty percent. Eighty percent of the pro- of the lanes will be dedicated lanes. Yeah. Which is a lot. I mean. Well, hopefully she will get overruled on this. Yeah. Well, I hope they do. I hope they put this together. It would be a benefit for um, Tennessee, and especially since it's such a, a major growing region. Yeah. Uh, right now, it's kind of the hot place, right? Right, and if they're going to prepare for a population growth explosion and prepare for the future with road expansion, they're leading the way toward a very dark future. Yeah, and I hope that you know I don't want them to come you know to be part of that culture of killing projects that might suck up Cincinnati as well. Well, they can kill all the projects they want. That's what I thought was such a great idea with what they were doing in Smart Growth America when they were killing road projects. Well, yeah, but those aren't projects that yeah. are being constructed yet. Right. <laughs> right. No, I'm I, I'm kidding. I hear you. Exactly. And, and you know, and if you're going to kill projects, kill the bad ones. Yeah. So should we talk about the world's happiest places? Yes, happy places. Let's go to our happy place, Happy Gilmore. <laughs> Take us there, Jeff. Well, this this is I mean this was the story of Penalosa in, in Bogota and how he made Bogota happy by putting in bike lanes and more public spaces for people and it's so interesting that Bogota is the kind of the poster child for for this kind of thing and that Enrique Penalosa is such a star at this I mean he is a star no doubt what he did was visionary but I lived in Bogota in 2002 soon after he was mayor. And, um, you know, the Ciclovia was the highlight of my week every week and being able to ride my bike more places than I could back in D.C. at that point um, safely and with some kind of protected, buffered, separated bike facility was was eye-opening and and wonderful, especially in a city with crazy drivers. Um, But I, I did feel like this article sort of papered over the fact that Bogota was also going through a civil war, had the highest murder rate in the world, you know, that it was still a pretty terrifying, pretty intimidating place to live and murderers though right i'm sorry they were happy murderers they were super happy murderers and they all happen actually a lot of them did happen on motorcycles so you know there's that um they have a word actually in spanish for for um paid assassins who get around by motorcycle oh gosh yeah sicarios sicarios yeah so mention that word again Anyway, I, I, I do find it interesting to just put Bogota at the center of an article about how to make a happy place, and it's all about bicycling. I mean, this argument's going back and forth about, I mean, South America in general being a place for innovation and transport. Um, you know, you have Medellin with the, the aerial tramways. Right. Uh, with, and they have, a, they, obviously, they had a huge crime problem. You have Curitiba with uh, the bus rapid transit there, but they were under, you know, a dictator. And so I sometimes think that, 
in, uh, in our promotion of these amazing things that happened, we kind of gloss over some of the things that actually were happening at the time. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Like, mentioned. like uh, death squads and car bombs. Right. right. Yeah, trouble. But, I mean, with that being said, I think that it allowed these things to pop up, the cyclovias and the and the bus rapid transit and the, you know, kind of people space, which Copenhagen and, and you know, Western Europe has done uh, earlier. But, you know, I, I think it gives it gives you hope when it's done in a place that isn't, you know, nobody wants to be compared to Portland. That's kind of the thing. So and a lot of places don't want to be compared to Western Europe. So when these other places do it, I think that people get a really happy feeling and maybe that contributes to the happiness. <laughs> but Right. Um, but and, I and here I, of course, had to insert death squads and sicarios into a conversation about what makes for happy cities. And I yeah, apologize see, for we that. Were, we were trying to be happy and you had to <laughs> And I'm ruining it again. Ruin the happiness. No, but I think that, you know, public spaces and places where people can congregate are, are big parts of, of a livable place. Yep. I mean, my, my neighborhood, I, I, I'm going to talk about it a lot probably <laughs> on these podcasts but i talk part, about mine on the blog all the time i know the, the best part for me is just be you know i walk in my bagel shop and they they know what i want and eat, what neighborhood you know? do you live in i, I live in noe valley oh, okay mm-hmm. but uh i walk in my bagel shop um and they know what i want to eat and it's right next to one of the first parklets in the city and um you know like i can walk into the to any number of shops on the street and, and people you know knew, know who I am and, and what I want. <laughs> Everybody know, knows shampoo. your name. Yeah, it's it's like the cheer. It's like cheers, right? Yeah. But we're not drinking beer all the time. You're eating uh, bagels. Which would be nice. But yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it kind of creates a sense of community and uh, I, I, it makes me happy. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. makes me feel comfortable in my, my own neighborhood. Well, on that note, happy trails, Jeff. Happy trails, Tanya. 